0: Welcome to Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. The focus of the rapid and successful drug development of a number of agents in renal cell cancer has been anti-angiogenesis. I met with Dr. Brian Reney to learn more about the mechanisms of action of these fascinating agents, and he began our conversation by putting the field in perspective. It's become
1: clear over the last two to three years that approaches that are anti-angiogenic in nature that target blood vessels around tumors, especially renal tumors, have really become the dominant systemic treatment approach for metastatic disease. Historically, we've used immunotherapies like interleukin-2 and interferon with some modest success, sometimes dramatic success, but in a very limited number of patients. And with some of the emerging understanding of biology, it's clear that the angiogenic pathways are very relevant to kidney cancer pathophysiology And as such, several drugs have developed that target various aspects of that pathway. Chief among these are probably three agents that are in the most advanced clinical development. There are two broad classes. One is small molecule inhibitors of receptors that are present on blood vessel cells, on endothelial cells that are receptors for vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, and agents that block this, such as sunitinib and serafinib are actually both FDA-approved. They were approved in late 2005, early 2006, because they showed a few things. Tumor shrinkage, general shrinkage of tumor burden in the majority of patients, objective responses in a smaller subset of patients ranging anywhere from 10 to up to 40% with sunitinib, and initially delayed time to progression in the case of serafinib versus placebo in a randomized controlled trial. Since those first FDA approvals, there have been other studies. Sunitinib was compared to interferon in a frontline study and showed a fairly dramatic progression-free survival benefit of 11 versus 5 months and also held up the response rate of 30 to 40%. And sunitinib has really become a frontline reference standard for this disease. Serafinib has had less development as initial therapy. We're waiting on some pending clinical trials for that agent. The other major class is Avastin bevacizumab, which is FDA-approved for other solid tumors such as colon cancer, which has demonstrated tumor shrinkage in the range of 70% as for the other agents, and respectable progression-free survivals in the frontline setting. And there's actually a large phase 3 trial that should be reported at ASCO this year of Avastin plus interferon versus interferon alone that I think will likely establish Avastin as a standard component of frontline therapy. There's already been a press release about that trial, which is why those results are somewhat available.
0: Can you comment on what the press release said, and assuming it sort of plays out the way it looks like it'll play out based on that press release at ASCO, how do you think it's going to shake out in terms of the algorithm? They released a press statement
1: regarding a European trial that randomized patients to either interferon alone, which was a standard of care at the time, or the combination of Avastin plus interferon. It was actually a placebo-controlled trial, so patients, in essence, got either interferon placebo or interferon Avastin. And the trial was powered both to look at overall survival and also at progression-free survival, since it was a blinded, randomized trial. And what the press release said, and I'm reading some of this, basically said that an interim analysis has shown that the drug, meaning bevacizumab, significantly prolongs progression-free survival in addition, this early analysis indicated a trend towards an improvement in overall survival. So, these press releases usually don't give us any numbers. And actually, this is one case where the actual numbers will be very important. The reason I say that is that the progression free survival, or PFS, for Sunitnab in the front line was 11 months from the phase three trial that I mentioned. So, one important question about the pending bevacizumab data is whether or not the PFS will be. The same as sunitinib or substantially better or worse. And my opinion is that that actual number will go a long way to determining the use of that agent in the front line. If the PFS is eight or nine months, which is arguably, you know, less than the 11 of sunitinib, the use may not be as great as if it's 11 months or greater.
0: And I guess that's an indirect comparison, which is, you know, the best we can do because that's that's, that's all we have. And that actually brings me to the question of sunitinib versus serafinib, because we're constrained by the types of trials that have been done and where we are in terms of data reporting. As you mentioned, sunitinib right now is commonly used as first-line therapy, although I think serafinib is not uncommonly used also. Mm -hmm. I think moving forward, sunitinib and then
1: I would think Avastin after the ASCO data is presented will be really the frontline agents of
0: choice in this disease. What do we know about the responses sequentially, particularly between the two TKIs? Very little. We presented
1: some data from Cleveland Clinic last year at ASCO that looked at really just a handful of patients who had gotten prior antiangiogenic therapy, which could have been sunitinib or serafinib, but also could have been other agents like thalidomide or other experimental agents. And there was clearly activity. It's not true that one antiangiogenic approach is equivalent to all antiangiogenic approaches specifically with sunitinib and serafinib, we had I believe it was three patients each way who had gotten either a then b or b then a so to speak and all of them had tumor shrinkage so there's clearly some activity there and really over the last year that's been the common i think community approach just the de facto approach they get started on one and when either they don't tolerate it or progress they get started on the other And we don't really know what the response rate is or the tumor shrinkage rate or the benefit or the toxicity. It's not really been well-defined. My understanding is there's a larger data set from French investigators that will be presented at ASCO this year that's still retrospective, but at least give us some additional insight into that question. And then what really needs to happen is prospective clinical trials. We're doing a trial at Cleveland Clinic looking at serafinib in patients who failed either Sutent or Avastin asking that exact question is, what is the value of sequenced monotherapy? And that's only one small component of what needs to be a lot of work to really look at the value of sequenced
0: therapy. Let's talk a little bit about the side effects profiles of these agents. And First, let's maybe begin with bevacizumab, specifically in renal cancer. What's been Mm -hmm. seen?
1: The predominant side effects have been, as in other diseases, but perhaps more prominent in renal cancer, hypertension and proteinuria. The exact mechanism is not well defined, but these are common side effects that probably occur in upwards of 30 or 40 percent of people. Can be grade three, that is more severe, in maybe five or 10 percent of people, depending on the definition. Having said that, you know bevacizumab is really a well-tolerated day-to-day drug. It's an IV infusion every other week, and really from day to day, there aren't many common side effects. Hypertension is generally well managed with standard antihypertensive approaches. Proteinuria is not terribly clinically significant unless patients get into the nephrotic range, which is not common. There's always, with bevacizumab, the sort of rare but serious side effects of bleeding, clotting, GI perforation, other cardiac issues, things like that. That is really relatively uncommon, but again, in the sort of rare but serious category.
0: To what extent have these agents, and specifically I'm wondering about bevacizumab, been utilized with people with primaries in place? And what do you see? I'd be curious not just about response, but even in terms of bleeding.
1: All we have in terms of these agents with patients with primaries in place is truly anecdotal data. On each of these trials, most of the trials excluded such patients. Some of the other trials did not. And every center has a patient or two who may have had their primary in place. And there are reports of primary tumor shrinking. I don't think there's been a lot of reports of bleeding in the primary tumors as a problem. I've not heard of that as a prominent problem, again, realizing it's a very limited number of cases. We're about to start a trial looking at sunitinib in patients with their primary in place, patients with unresectable tumors. So these would be big, big tumors, locally advanced, that if anybody's going to bleed, it would be this group of patients. And so we'll have a little better handle months down the road about that particular question.
0: That'll be really fascinating. How often do you see patients or do you treat patients with a primary in place, and how often do you actually have the primaries taken out in spite of metastatic disease? There were two prospective
1: trials conducted in the 90s, one U.S., one in Europe, looking at the value of debulking nephrectomy in metastatic disease. Now, all those patients got interferon subsequent to surgery or interferon alone. Those trials showed a pretty substantial survival benefit, overall survival benefit, for undergoing nephrectomy, and on the basis of those trials debulking nephrectomy was really the standard of care in patients who were suitable, good performance status, resectable tumors, et cetera. In the era of VEGF-targeted therapy, the paradigm hasn't changed, although people have questioned whether or not all those patients really need to go to surgery. I'm still a believer that debulking nephrectomy is the standard of care. At Cleveland Clinic, we still generally send patients who are appropriate to debulking nephrectomy and then give them systemic therapy with VEGF-targeted agents or otherwise.
0: Are most of those laparoscopically done? Not necessarily. I
1: mean, that's a technical surgical question about the size of the tumor and the location and the status of the patient and et cetera. So I don't know that I would say most are done laparoscopically. I'm not sure what the percentage is.
0: Getting back to the issue of hypertension, I'm curious, in a patient with metastatic disease where you're treating the patient with BEV, what criteria, and I like to ask this in, you know, lung and breast and colon too, because in the metastatic setting, you know, you wonder about exactly what the goals are. What criteria do you use to initiate therapy in terms of what the level of systemic and diastolic pressure is? Yeah,
1: I don't know if there's any magic numbers. I mean, the clinical trials have sort of been all over the map with this because, The way that the CTC defines hypertension, grade three is just more intense therapy than previously, which is sort of a vague and can be a variable threshold for initiating therapy. I usually sort of, when people get into the 140 to 160 systolic over, say, 90 to 100 diastolic, that's probably when the numbers would get my attention. It kind of depends on where they start, too. If somebody's a little on the hypotensive side to start, those numbers may be lower. I think... It's probably key to aggressively manage the hypertension early. And I think we're better at managing these patients early than we used to be just because we know it's going to be a side effect. We know that the patient who walks in at 140 over 90 already on two medicines is probably going to have problems.
0: Any thoughts about the mechanism of why hypertension occurs and whether this, as you kind of alluded to, might be different in patients with renal cell?
1: Yeah, I'm not aware of really any good studies that have looked at mechanism. The only data I'm aware of looked at I think it was renal and melanoma patients who had gotten serafinib and looked at some measures like plasma renin and aldosterone and catecholamines and things like that and really didn't find much in terms of a precise mechanism. There are a few papers out there that speculate about the role of nitrous oxide and other effects, but I'm not aware of any convincing data that has nailed down the mechanism.
0: What is your take on the data that's come out from a variety of tumors in terms of the issue of arteriothrombotic events with bevacizumab, and how do you approach that in patients in terms of selection? I think the most refined data is from the colon cancer trials
1: that identified the risk of arteriothrombotic events, or ATE, and identified some risk factors such as age prior cardiovascular history, I believe, were the main risk factors. If you look at that analysis, they actually showed that the hazard ratio for benefit was the same in those patients. So like any medical decision, it's a matter of risk and benefit. And these patients, you know, otherwise have MetaSag disease, a terminal metasag disease. So while well, we don't want to place them in undue risk, and certainly an arterial event can be a, an acute quality of life issue, quality of life reducing event. In general, I think these are manageable side effects. You know, on the balance of risk benefit, it's relatively rare and I think the risk benefit is still in favor of the agent.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the side effects profiles of sunitinib and serafinib. Can you talk about what we know about that and also what your clinical experience is?
1: Sure. So, for the tyrosine kinase inhibitors or TKIs, sunitinib and serafinib specifically, the general categories of side effect as I usually describe them to patients are fatigue, gastrointestinal symptoms such as mucositis, diarrhea, hand-foot syndrome is a very unique side effect of this class of agents, redness, soreness of the hands and feet. Those are probably the major categories. I usually tell patients that about 30 to 40% will get each of those side effects. So they're likely to get some of those side effects, but not all of them. About 5 or 10% can have those side effects at a severe level.
0: In terms of your own sort of clinical experience, how do you see the difference between these two agents in terms of what patients experience?
1: I think, you know, again, there's no head-to-head comparisons, which would really be the only way to adequately compare. Serafinib, I think, tends to be a little better tolerated agent for the group. If you had a group of 100 patients getting each, it probably is true that Serafinib would be a little better tolerated on average. It tends to have a side effect profile where the weeks four to six or somewhere about there, the side effects peak and then tend to dissipate, which may tell us something about what's happening with drug levels or other metabolism issues. But just clinically, that's sort of the pattern that emerges. Sutan is dosed differently. It's intermittent, four weeks on, two weeks off. So those side effects tend to build up over four weeks, resolve over two weeks, and then reappear during the dosing period. So the timing and the schedule and the appearance of side effects are a little different for each agent. Having said that, people can certainly have bad side effects on have been tolerate SUTENT wonderfully. So it's not an all or nothing. We don't have any real way to predict for individual patients.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the hand-foot syndrome and sort of what the clinical appearance of it is, how you prevent it or treat it, and how it compares to the hand-foot syndrome with other agents?
1: Yeah, it's really a unique hand-foot syndrome that is different from, say, a 5-FU-based hand-foot syndrome. It tends to start out as just maybe tenderness or erythema, sometimes just redness without pain usually then progresses to more of a blistering phenomenon. I sometimes will tell patients it's like if they were tugging on a rope, your hands would get red, and then you might get some sort of more acutely tender and inflamed areas. These tend to occur on the pressure points, so a little more on the feet than the hands on the ball, soles of the foot, or people who work with their hands will get up on the pressure point areas in their hands. And then it tends to develop sort of a chronic nature. If assuming that doesn't progress to severe pain interfering with function, it tends to become more chronic appearing. That is sort of a calloused appearance, sort of a weathered calloused appearance, you know, flaking skin and things like that. So that's generally the time course. Not everybody gets it. I'm not sure what predisposing factors are. I tend to think that pressure, repetitive pressure, perhaps heat is a factor, but there aren't really any hard evidence to back that up. Once people get it, There are some tricks you can do to mitigate the symptoms, but if they really progress to the point of pain, they're going to require dose interruption and maybe dose reduction. So we use topical creams like Bag Balm and all the other sort of really thick, heavy creams just to try and keep the skin moist. But really, there aren't any good treatments. People have tried vitamin B6, but to my knowledge, that's not been at all successful in alleviating the symptoms.
0: What about prevention?
1: None that I know of. I don't really know of any way to prevent it. We usually tell people not to wear sort of tight-fitting shoes or heavy socks where they're going to sweat in or things like that, but I'm not sure that we're really preventing anything. Those are just sort of general advice, so I'm not aware of any effective prevention strategy.
0: You published recently in the JNCI some information about thyroid function and sunitinib. Can you talk about that? Sure. So we had looked at
1: a large number of our patients who had had metastatic kidney cancer and had gotten sunitinib on one of a variety of trials, and we had started about 30 patients into that, doing uh, thyroid function tests routinely at baseline and then every two cycles. There had been some reports with sunitinib in a different disease and gist of thyroid dysfunction. So we started to check it on our patients, and what we found, as we sort of looked back in the retrospective review that you referred to, that about 85% of patients had one or more abnormality in thyroid function so that could have been a mild tsh abnormality or something else that does not say it was clinically significant but does tell us that the degree that the percentage of patients who have some abnormalities is high a smaller subset of that patients about half of those patients had more than one abnormality or had clinical signs or symptoms consistent with hypothyroidism now the difficulty of course is that some of those symptoms like fatigue or puffiness can be symptoms of sunitinib as well So it was hard, if not impossible, to say that they were strictly related to thyroid function. Uh, I believe 17 patients got thyroid replacement, and about half of them had improvement in symptoms. So it was more of a report to make people aware that it is a potential side effect. I think it tends to be cumulative. If patients stay on it long enough, I think they're likely to get hypothyroid. And that with sunitinib therapy, it should be monitored. And if patients get hypothyroid, you know, either clinically and or biochemically, they should be replaced with Synthroid because it can help ameliorate side effects. Not always, but it's at least something that's treatable. The mechanism is really unknown. Presumably there's interference of blood flow to thyroid cells with the drugs, but that's really not well described. We're going to report data at ASCO this year with serafinib, where we really didn't see the same phenomenon. And without giving you too many details, it tells us that the drugs are different. We really see that hypothyroidism with sunitinib when we really don't see it as prominently with serafinib.
0: Overall, what fraction of patients who receive sunitinib end up requiring replacement? I know it's probably a hard percentage to come by. I mean, my guess is probably on the range of 15 to 20%. And how much of an issue do you think this is, assuming the physician monitors thyroid function? It's really a non-issue in terms
1: of giving the drug. Again, these people have you know a bad disease requiring treatment, and sunitinib is a good treatment, so wouldn't it wouldn't at all prevent you from giving somebody the drug. If they get hypothyroidism, it's really easily treatable. So it's just something to be aware of. I don't think it interferes with giving the medicine.
0: Where are we in terms of adjuvant therapy? I know there's a major trial looking at these two agents. Can you talk about that study and where you think that's all heading? Sure. There's a large intergroup
1: trial led by ECOG that started a few months ago and has accrued a few hundred patients that randomizes kidney cancer patients who've had an nephrectomy who do not have metastatic disease, but are at high risk for recurrence based on size, grade, lymph node involvement, et cetera, to a year of therapy with either placebo, sunitinib, or serafinib. It's a blinded trial. So all the pills are matched. And the primary endpoint is disease-free survival. I believe the total accrual planned is about thirteen or 1,400, somewhere in that range, which should take about an additional 3 to three and a half years. And then it will take quite some time after that, of course, for the recurrences to happen and the endpoint to be met. It was a natural trial to do once these agents demonstrated activity in the adjuvant setting. There's no trials that have ever convincingly demonstrated benefit to any approach in the adjuvant setting. So I think it makes sense. The risk-benefit profile is a little different, of course, because these people don't have metastatic disease. Many of them don't have disease at all, who are never destined to recur, and we're committing them to a year of potentially toxic therapy. So I think the benefit's going to have to be real, and the side effects are going to have to be acceptable for those drugs to make headway in that group of patients.
0: It's going to be really interesting to see, considering that it's blinded, what happens in terms of side effects. any guesses or predictions in terms of what we're going to see, for example, in terms of dose modification or people having to drop off therapy between the two drugs?
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know I think with the side effect profiles, you would think that you'd be able to tell who was getting placebo and who is getting at least one of the active drugs, and again, getting people through a year of therapy is no small feat especially when, again, they don't have metastatic disease, they don't have perhaps the motivation, if you will, of having metastatic disease that's going to need treatment and going to get worse if they don't get treatment. So it'll be interesting to look at dropout rates and what's the average number of months that patients actually get it won't be a year since that's the maximum. You know, it'll be interesting to see if it's closer to six or nine months or something. Yeah,
0: it will be interesting. And there are not too many other examples of, you know, a year of oral therapy like that in the adjuvant setting. I guess one would yeah. be endocrine therapy of breast cancer, which mm-hmm. most people seem to get through okay. Do you think it's going to be sort of more like that and that most people are going to be able to get through the year? Or do you think most people won't? I don't know, actually.
1: I mean, I don't give adjuvant therapy for breast cancer, but I think those drugs would probably be better tolerated than sunitinib or serafinib on a daily basis would be my sense. I would bet the median time on therapy would be closer to nine months. Interesting. That's a total guess on my part, but I can't see the majority making it out to a year.
0: Right. I want to move towards talking about other agents and then eventually sort of see if we can tie this together in terms of the biology of this tumor. But before we get into that, I'm just kind of curious if you think about these agents and also in terms of bevacizumab, any sort of guesses in terms of how these might play out in the adjuvant setting as opposed to metastatic disease?
1: Yeah, frankly, I don't think we really know. I mean, when antiangiogenic therapy first sort of came to the clinical arena, people said that... You know, it wouldn't really shrink tumors, that it would just keep tumors dormant, that it would work better for smaller tumors or perhaps micrometastatic disease, like in the adjuvant setting. At least in kidney cancer, monotherapy can produce dramatic tumor shrinkage. It can shrink big tumors and it can work in advanced disease. So I'm not quite sure that those initial thoughts were absolutely correct. Whether or not it's more likely to work in micrometastatic disease versus, you know, macroscopic disease, so to speak. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that we know enough about the biology of microscopic disease because it's a very difficult thing to study. One thing we do know is that VHL, von Hippel-Lindau gene inactivation, is an early event in kidney cancer. And that's really the biology that drives the response to these agents, at least in part. So from that standpoint, it does make sense that these early cells, so to speak, probably have the same biology of overt metastatic disease and at least the potential to respond to these agents. Now, whether or not you can Wipe out every last individual cell, and cause a patient not to recur by giving these agents who is otherwise destined to recur is a difficult question. We'll have to just wait for the trials.
0: Are there adjuvant trials with bevacizumab being planned or implemented in kidney cancer? Not to my knowledge. Hmm. Do you see that coming down the line? You know, I think once the phase three metastatic
1: data comes out, that'll be the focus over the next six months or so. Again, because it's such a well-tolerated agent, I think patients may be more likely to get through a longer duration of therapy with that drug than with the TKIs in the adjuvant setting. There are adjuvant trials in colon cancer and other diseases that are ongoing. So it seems natural just depend on the company's approach to it or if the cooperative groups can't really take that on because they're already doing a big adjuvant trial that's going to take many years. So it probably have to be industry-sponsored or perhaps a European trial, you know, some other setting.
0: Can you comment on the paper that you published in December looking at two patients who were treated with sunitinib for metastatic disease, but also had a resection of their metastasis and sort of what you think this means?
1: Yeah, it was really just, you know, again, it's two patients, so it's anecdotal. And it's really just an observation. In kidney cancer with immunotherapy, occasionally patients, you know, who had a great response could be taken to resection and could have a long disease-free interval afterwards, So while you could never do a randomized controlled trial in this setting, it gave the sense that if people responded to therapy, that perhaps multimodal therapy, i.e. surgery afterwards, could be of benefit or at least was reasonable to consider. And I think that'll certainly be true with these agents as well. More patients have response. More patients probably get to a point where they can have surgical resection. And so it was really just to put it out there that, you know, we've done it, we've seen it, there weren't problems with wound healing, and those patients are disease-free now many months after surgery off drug. It's hard to know what would have happened without surgery or without sunitinib. You know, it's hard to know since it's just two cases. But it was really just to sort of make the point that, and I've certainly seen it play out in my clinic many times since then, that we now might consider patients for surgery. We're going to have more patients who are considering for surgery after systemic therapy.
0: I believe I'm correct in saying that with the TKIs, even though obviously not everybody has a partial response, when you look at the waterfall plots, Mm -hmm. that most patients have tumor shrinkage. What do we know about the patients who don't experience response initially up front to these agents in terms of the biology of their tumors or why one responds and one doesn't? Yeah, I
1: would say in short, nothing. (laughs) As you state, 70-75% will have tumor shrinkage pretty consistently with almost every antiangiogenic monotherapy in kidney cancer. It's remarkably similar, whether it's Sutent, Serafinib, Avastin, AG13736, any one of the new agents. It's pretty remarkable, consistent amount of tumor shrinkage. So my hypothesis would be there must be something about those patients that's different from the 25, 30% that don't respond. We looked both when I was at UCSF and now at Cleveland Clinic at von Hippel-Lindau gene mutations. And there's probably something there but it's not as clean as mutated respond and non-mutated don't. There's probably some complex biology of VHL gene status, RNA expression, protein expression. There's probably a number of factors that could segregate patients, but we just don't yet have the studies and the data to do that. Clinically, again, there have been some factors that have been looked at, and they tend to be very generic factors, performance status or hemoglobin level. Things that may not be specific to this therapy may just be specific to cancer patients who do well regardless of therapy. So we're really just scratching the surface with
0: predictive factors in this disease. Can you talk a little bit about the biologic model of how we understand renal cell cancer and where we think these various agents are affecting the tumor, the mechanism of action within that model of these various agents?
1: Well, I think we're assuming and I think safely assuming that these agents are acting on the blood vessels, either on the endothelial cells themselves or supporting cells like pericytes and that because kidney cancer produces VEGF and PDGF and other proangiogenic growth factors, that by blocking the effect of those growth factors, we're blocking the growth of the tumor. We're blocking the blood supply and the formation of new blood vessels, and that's causing tumor shrinkage. It's a difficult thing to prove with certainty. It's hard to get a tissue sample from a patient who's actively on one of these drugs and show that the receptors are blocked. And there aren't really any plasma assays that are satisfactory in definitively proving that. But I think, especially in kidney cancer, and this may not be true in other diseases where chemotherapy delivery or other mechanisms may be at play, but I think in kidney cancer it's probably a frank antiangiogenic effect. Whether or not there are receptors for VEGF on kidney cancer tumor cells themselves and whether or not that's a mechanism I think is unresolved at this point.
0: Can you talk a little bit about temsirolimus, the mTOR inhibitor?
1: Sure. So temsirolimus is a white compound. It's an intravenous weekly drug that inhibits mammalian target of rapamycin or mTOR. mTOR is one of those central cellular protein that's integral to a number of events. Relevant to this discussion, it's probably implicated in transcription of a transcription factor called HIF, which regulates angiogenesis, and it probably does a number of other intracellular pathways as well. There was a trial in poor-risk kidney cancer, really the very poorest prognosis patients that looked at Temsarolimus versus interferon versus the combination and really for the first time showed an overall survival benefit to temsirolimus monotherapy, which is impressive, number one, because it was overall survival, but secondly, because this group of patients was really poor risk, very poor performance status. Many of them still had their primary tumors in place, and other poor prognostic factors such as low hemoglobin, et cetera. So to show a benefit in that subgroup, I think, is clinically impressive. And that agent will likely be FDA-approved. The kidney cancer community, the research community, I think, is expecting that agent to be approved. And that will be you know yet another
0: agent to sort of work into our armamentarium and to study further. How do you see the side effects and tolerability profile of that agent compared to the two TKIs? Yeah, it has a little bit different side
1: effect profile. Fatigue is probably a common side effect. It also can produce hyperglycemia, hypertriglyceridemia, which we really don't see with the other agents. That tends to be more of a nuisance than anything else. I mean, if you're aware of it, it can be managed. It can also, there have been some rare reports of pulmonary events with that agent that I think needs to be further studied. So I think the tolerability is in the same ballpark. You know, a different profile, but I wouldn't say that they are orders of magnitude apart in terms of tolerability.
0: How do you see that agent, if it is approved, sort of being integrated into your algorithm? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, strictly speaking,
1: the study was just in poor risk patients. They expanded the study and ended up including patients that we might call intermediate, but really certainly patients with multiple adverse risk factors. So the real biologic question is, is there some reason the drug would only work in that subset? Or did that just happen to be the subset they studied? And until more studies are done, we won't really know the answer to that question. I think given the availability of other active agents, it may initially largely be used in that poor risk patient population. As other data comes out, as combination studies come out, and as use in other populations gets reported, then that may expand.
0: What about the issue of combinations of these various agents? I guess one that would be obviously of interest would be a TKI plus bevacizumab. What do we know about that, and what will we know about it? There are two ongoing
1: studies of bevacizumab plus serafinib, one through Vanderbilt and some affiliated hospitals and one through the NCI that have reported at the last couple ASCOs. And it's been a lot of different dose levels where both studies have roughly ended up is that about half dose of each medicine is tolerable. Activity-wise, although it's a phase one study, at least in the kidney cancer study, one is specifically kidney cancer. There's been quite a bit of activity. Almost everybody's had tumor shrinkage. So I think That regimen is still really finding its way in terms of deciding the doses, and certainly a long way to go in terms of defining activity, but it's at least preliminarily interesting. At Cleveland Clinic, we have a trial of Sutent plus Avastin, and, and there's also another one at another center that's farther behind in terms of development, but proceeding relatively rapidly and starting to get up to close to full doses. We still have a lot of work to do to define the toxicity, but it looks like those drugs will at least be combinable on some level. And again, further studies will help define the activity.
0: What about other combinations? For example, combining the mTOR inhibitor with something else? Yeah, so I mean, you name an active drug or drug
1: that's being tested in kidney cancer and it's being combined with about every other drug out there. So a lot of them are just empirical clinical combinations. Some have a little more scientific rationale or mechanistic basis, but pretty much everything that we've mentioned and that is approved and or investigational in kidney cancer is being combined And it will be important to really tease out the benefits. I mean, combination therapy has to produce really clinically and statistically significantly meaningful improvements over just giving each drug by itself in sequence. And that's going to take a long time to sort out. I think that will take years to really sort out which combinations, if any, have real true benefits over
0: just giving them alone. Of course, I guess the other thing would be the implications in terms of the adjuvant setting. What fraction of patients with newly diagnosed renal cell cancer fall into the potential adjuvant category well there's
1: in the u s about thirty six thousand patients a year, about two thirds are metastatic, so you know roughly say twenty four thousand if you took out the really low risk people, the tumor's less than four centimeters, the t one a tumors you still have gosh probably fifteen to twenty thousand patients who are at a reasonable risk for recurrence who could be eligible for
0: adjuvant therapy. Anything going on to downstage patients on diagnosis? I guess that's already sort of happening in terms of people being picked up with incidental CAT scans, et cetera. But what about in terms of actual screening? There really haven't really been any
1: successful screening efforts. There are studies ongoing, but nothing that has yet proven clinically useful in terms of early detection In terms of downstaging, which is a little bit of a different question I mentioned, we're starting to look at Sutent, and other people are looking at Sunitinib and other agents in the neoadjuvant setting to try and downstage to potentially make surgery more
0: successful. But those trials are in their early stages. It's interesting. I didn't even mean to say downstage. I was thinking more, I guess, in terms of stage shift or whatever. Yeah, stage migration. Stage migration. But actually, now that you mention it, it's interesting to think about downstaging and whether you know we're going to get to a point with this disease in a few years, like colon cancer, where looking at people with oligometastatic disease, and we really try to downstage them with chemo. I wonder, do you think there are enough patients like that with renal cell that theoretically that could be a significant strategy?
1: I think so. At Cleveland Clinic, our urologists see a lot of those patients who have sort of borderline resectable disease. And so those would be the type of patients that if we could downstage them and take them to surgery, could potentially significantly benefit those patients, basically taking them from An incurable state to a potentially curable state, and so, you know, as mentioned, we're starting to look at that as our others, and so we'll have to wait over the months and years to see what the effect of these drugs in the primary tumor is. That's not really well defined, as we alluded to earlier.
0: Another paper that you were involved with, kind of interesting, looked at gemcitabine and capecitabine, something that people wouldn't normally think about with renal cell. Can you talk about what you saw there and what you think it means? So, you know, before the days of antiangiogenic drugs.
1: Immunotherapy and chemotherapy were really used for kidney cancer, and mostly immunotherapy. Over the years, you know, several people, including myself, have looked at combinations of 5FU or 5FU type products such as capecitabine with gemcitabine and seen response rates in the 10 to 15 percent, which is a little higher than the single agent or zero that we see with other chemotherapy. So there's a little something there. I mean, when these other VEGF targeted agents came out, chemotherapy got pushed well to the background as it should have been. So there's a little activity there. We will occasionally use it in patients who failed all other therapies, including all the new therapies. There have been some reports about the use of certain chemotherapy regimens in patients with sarcomatoid renal cell that you know need to be verified. So there may be a role there, but I think it's relatively few and far between.
0: What are some of the clinical trial questions you'd like to see addressed in this disease? Well, I think the big questions facing us now are the safety and value of combination
1: therapies, the value of sequenced monotherapies, the utility of these drugs in the adjuvant setting would be another major question that will be answered with the ongoing trials. And then just, you know, novel agents that target angiogenesis in a different way than what we've talked about alone or in combination with these agents. So there's really a number of questions, which is why our belief is, you know, Clinical trials are more important than ever now in kidney cancer. Before we did them, because nothing else worked, and we had to find stuff. Now we need to do them to really define how to optimally use these agents. I think we're really just in our infancy of understanding how to best use them.
0: How are tissue and sera correlates being integrated into these trials? Well, hopefully, you know, all the trials have some component of blood and
1: tissue collection to look at correlates of response or resistance. It's often easier said than done, especially for tissue. We tend to build that into our trials or have other protocols where we can collect said samples to look at gene expression or VHL mutation status or immunohistochemistry or you name it. So I think that's generally a part of the strategy. It's difficult to do because you need very big numbers to show the effect of those correlates generally more than you need perhaps for your clinical endpoints. And it's also time consuming and expensive to build those correlates into studies where you don't know what the effect of the drug or drugs is going to be a priori. So we're starting to do that to look back at some of the phase three trials that have tissue samples collected, some of our bigger phase two trials, and also to think about that prospectively.
0: How do you see sort of, it seems like it's happening with a lot of diseases. It seems like there are more agents that need to be tested almost than patients. How do you yeah. see this getting fleshed out specifically in renal cell? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a
1: good point. Kidney cancer is still a relatively rare disease. You know, there's 12 or
0: so thousand
1: metastatic patients in the U.S. per year. And if we tested every drug and every combination and sequence, even if every single patient went on a clinical trial, I think we'd run out of patients. And of course, unfortunately, the vast minority of patients go on trials. So I think a lot of it will just play out in the market, so to speak, meaning certain drugs will be better tolerated, certain combinations will be better tolerated, and we'll move forward. Certain ideas will have more scientific merit and will sort of rise to the top, and we'll have to certainly harness every patient, you know, and trial opportunity we can because we simply can't ask and answer every single question we're going to have to sort of prioritize.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what we know in terms of systemic management of non-clear cell renal cancers?
1: Yeah, in terms of non-clear cell, most of the VEGF-targeted therapies excluded those patients because their biology is different. and may or may not respond to these therapies. Having said that, these agents do have some effect in those patients, so it's clearly part of the non-clear cell biology is responsive to VEGF pathway targeting. Interestingly, in the temsirolimus phase three trial, the subset of non-clear cell patients—and I don't know the actual numbers—but it looks like there may be some more effect of that agent in non-clear cell for whatever reason. So, non-clear cell sort of gotten left out of the cold in this whole movement. But I think, as we start to apply these agents more, understand the biology, look at temsirolimus, that there will be more treatment options for those patients. There are also. Other agents targeting pathways that are specific, say, to papillary kidney cancer, like CMET. There's a CMET inhibitor, one or more out in trials now in papillary kidney cancer. So I think there's a smaller but significant movement in non clear cell to find better treatments.
0: What about the issue of escalation of dose, particularly with the TKIs in response? Do we know in patients who are tolerating these agents well whether you get more anti tumor effect if you escalate the dose? With
1: sunitinib, the early trials did allow dose escalation and anecdotally didn't really see any increased effect. With serafinib, as I mentioned, the side effect profile can often reduce after four to six weeks on therapy, and it may be that drug metabolism changes and drug levels lower. And there has started to be a movement in clinical trials and otherwise to look at dose escalation of serafinib. It was part of the initial randomized phase 2 trial in untreated patients that's yet to be reported that included dose escalation for patients who progressed on standard dose. Anecdotally, we've seen people respond on an escalated dose where they didn't respond to standard dose. So we're starting to think that perhaps one way of optimizing the anti-tumor effect of that drug is to look at different doses and schedules, i.e. dose escalation. It's an exciting time in kidney cancer, mostly for patients, of course, because we now have some drugs to work with There's a lot of unanswered questions. So not by a long shot do we have this thing figured out. And the sobering point is that even as wildly effective as these therapies are, there's not been proven cures from any of these drugs for any patients. We don't really know the long-term results and whether there's a long-term cure rate. And so most patients will relapse and need further treatment. And again, that's why we need to systematically test treatments in that setting.